you're listening to episode 68 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing. Every week we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. I'm Simon Jones, Digital Marketing Manager here at the Centre, and I'm recording this on October the 31st. That means by the time you're listening to this, NaNoWriMo would have begun. If you've not heard of it before, let me give you a quick 101. NaNoWriMo stands for National Novel Writing Month, even though it's now an international thing. It's an annual challenge to write 50,000 words in the month of November. It started in 1999 and now has hundreds of thousands of participants every year. If 50,000 words sounds like a lot, that's because it is. It works out to about 1,600 words per day. It's not easy. But even if you don't hit the 50k target, you'll still have more words at the end of the month than you did at the start. So it's a win-win. This year, we're going to be sharing writing prompts every day throughout the month on Twitter to help give you boosts of inspiration. Follow us at Writers Center and be sure to keep us posted on your word count. I'm taking part this year after a few years off, so I'll certainly be sharing my progress. As for today, we have a great interview with Denise Mina, the award-winning Scottish crime writer, playwright, and comic book author. Her latest book is Conviction, a novel which intersects with the world of true crime podcasts. As our resident true crime aficionado, Steph is asking the questions today. It's a fascinating discussion exploring genre, the notion of high and low art, and the power of crime fiction to explore progressive politics. So here's Steph and Denise talking during the Noirage Crime Writing Festival here at Dragon Hall back in September. Denise, thank you so much for taking some time to chat to me Delighted. after your event. It was fascinating. Um, and welcome back to Noirage as well. I know. You, is this your second time? Second time, yeah. Lovely. Well, it's lovely to have you back. Um, so a lot. firstly, a lot of our listeners are kind of practicing writers, aspiring writers, and they're really interested in the craft of writing. How did you arrive at writing your first novel and what drew you to the crime genre in particular? Well, at that time, I was doing a PhD and uh, it was in something very dry. It was... It was gendered, the gender description of mental illness to female offenders. Oh, wow. It was fascinating. Yeah. It was just about how the courts construct mental illness through um, a differently for different genders. Sure. And I thought, this stuff's absolutely amazing. I mean, it was other people's stuff I was reading. And I thought, why do people not know about this stuff? And then I realised it was because it was written about very academically. But these yeah. were fascinating ideas. I mean, really you know, world-changing ideas, the idea that mental illness can be an expression of your gender role that you're trapped in. Um, and I thought, if you could put... Because I was reading a lot of crime fiction, but I was reading it like most of us read it just for fun, mm. you know, and but absorbing a lot of the narrative. So a lot of American crime fiction at that time, the police would find irrefutable evidence and shoot the guy at the end. And I, and I was very aware that this was an incredibly right-wing, neo-fascist kind of narrative arc. And I thought if you could put those really interesting progressive ideas in a crime fiction format, um, then you would disseminate these really interesting ideas through popular narrative. Um, I, I mean, I had no idea people had done it before. Mm. I really had mm. no idea. And um, uh, and I thought maybe six other women in Glasgow would be interested in that, you know. Um, but when I went to Scotland, because I, you know, I would do interviews in Britain, and it, and I would say this is what I was trying to do, and then they would say, you know, um, sprightly Denise likes bicycling, and uh, you know, how does she fit it all in? And uh, and then I went to Scandinavia, and they said, oh yeah, crime fiction as a vehicle for progressive mm. politics mm. is something that everyone's always done. But so that's that's why I started because it was because I thought there has to be a better way to 
disseminate these ideas. So I had a PhD grant and I just stayed home and wrote the first hundred pages. Mm. And uh, and then I realised, because I need to know how to write a book. Mm. And um, But I didn't take it terribly seriously. So I went on a course in the Women's Library in Glasgow that was run by a woman called Mary Wings. And um, she was like a real proto um, early feminist crime fiction writer. And she basically said, you know, you have to have questions that are hanging, answer them, and then you raise another question and um, and answer that. And then you have to come mm. to a satisfactory answer at the end. And uh, um, and basically what she said is just bang it out and then you can go back and fix it. Yeah, editing is the it. key really, isn't Always. it? Always. And also, I think if you're writing, if you're any good, you're going to be paralysed with self-doubt and everything you read is going to be... You know, sometimes I read people like um, James Patterson, mm. his books are pants and it gives mm. you real confidence yeah. because you think, well, if he can put that out and still show his face in public, then I, you know, maybe the sentences I've written are all right. And um, so it sometimes is really informative to read bad stuff and mm. actually screenshot, screenshot bad pa- paragraphs. Just read your mind. Yeah, just read them when, you, when your confidence is really low. and you Because I think you need to be self-critical. You need to be able to read your first draft critically to make it better, but it's not comfortable. Yeah. You know? So that's that's a real, you know, always be aware of the fact that um, it's not as bad as you think it is. And you can make it a bit better, but ultimately you know, you have to give yourself a bit of a break, really. Um, it's interesting you were saying about crime writing can be used to kind of make sense of or shine a light on today's world. And on Friday, a lot of the events at Noirage were focused on sort of environmental crime fiction. Oh, wow. and right. Yeah, so climate change in particular. Yeah. And we had George Alagaya talking about his book. Um, but it is very much on, yeah, making sense of today's world through crime fiction. Um, so do you see it as part of your role as a writer to get under the skin of what is happening around us? Really, I really do. And I, I think crime fiction, because you, you're supposed to write it quickly, you're supposed mm. to bring out a book a year, whether you mean to or not, it is zeitgeisty. So, so you know, even if you're writing historical crime fiction, it is still about the concerns of now. Mm. Um, it, it's almost impossible not to do that. Um, but I mean, I don't think I know what we should all do. Because, yeah. it, you know, if you're a political writer, there does come a point where you think, why don't you just make t-shirts with slogans on them if you can sum it up so I think you have to approach that with a bit of humility and you have to say you know I don't really know any better than this but what I do have is the ability to read incredibly dull things Mm. and distill them and disseminate them through crime fiction Mm. so ideas or questions rather than saying you know everybody who looks like this should be in prison. Yeah. But m- more exploring things and looking at things like, um, um, you know, I wrote a series of books about someone who had um, been um, it, it mentally ill and been in hospital, but she had still been sexually abused as a child. Because sure. there's a big thing in the courts that if you're a bad witness, they will not prosecute your case. Right. But, they, but it doesn't stop you being a full person who's able to use rational deduction mm. or have friends or have a job because you were in a mental hospital mm. because of things that happened to you. So, you know, th- things like that, rather than saying, you know, anyone who does this is bad mm. or rich people are evil or posh people are evil because mm. that's just bullshit. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So, so I think you have to be careful. You have to be aware of the fact that if you're telling someone a story and they like the central character, they're very bought into um, what you're doing and you have to say, is this really within my... You know, do I really know any more about this yeah. than anyone else? Because mm-hmm. you, chances are, no, you don't. You know, um, uh, 
but maybe bring your own perspective mm. to it or your own areas of concern. But I think crime fiction is always about the zeitgeist, yeah. and that's really we read it as an abstract form of what's actually happening now. Mm. You know. So your newest book that you were talking about tonight, Conviction, um, opens with Anna, the narrator, who's chosen this kind of new fictional identity for herself. And she's listening to a true crime podcast. So there's this relationship between kind of fact, fact and fiction. Yeah. And I think there's been quite a lot of that in your in your writing and kind of truth and lies. And you've experimented with this uh, idea before in The Long Drop. So what's your relationship with... Uh, fact and fiction and the sort of slippery nature of truth is that something that really interests you in particular because it feels like it comes up quite a lot it's it's always fascinated me and a lot of a lot of um crime writers base their work on a case that they've heard about recently and um in my first book i actually changed the names of restaurants and instead of calling it the Regano, I called it the Lagarno. And at the time, I remember thinking, what are you doing that for? That is mad that you're pretending, although everyone will know. And nothing happens in it. They're not going to sue you. Um, everyone will know that that's what that is, you know. And uh, um, so, but I mean, I think as soon as you put something in a fictional shape, it becomes a fiction. Mm. But it's not about the content of that it's about the shape of it so a lawyer in court telling a story is writing fiction and but we still expect it to be a scientific examination of the facts it isn't mm. because we have an, an adversarial system so in an adversarial system you have two lawyers telling different stories and the one with the best story wins that's how fundamental narrative is mm. um but we still talk about it as if isn't it incredible that they didn't tell the truth or you know, we try to make it fair, but it really is a storytelling competition, mm. you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by truth and and um, fiction and the overlap, because I think the overlap is much bigger than... than I mean, quite a lot of cr crime fiction writers are very snooty about true, true crime. Mm. They really don't like it at all, and they're like, what we're doing is completely different. It isn't. Yeah, yeah. It's not totally different. No. And often people will say, oh, I got that from that case that was on, or... You know, so you just, that's a heavily fictionalised version of that, or you've taken out the boring bits, or... Um, but yeah, I just don't think fiction and non-fiction are that dissimilar. No. This is, yeah, there's a there's an aspect of storytelling in both, isn't there? It, it, it's it is. It's been filtered. Well, it has to have a narrative shape. Yeah. So you're taking certain things out, and you're taking out contradictions, and you're taking out, you know, the murderer was actually a good guy, he was nice to his mum... You, do you know what I mean? You're mm. cleaning it up and and combing through it, and the the way we experience. But we shouldn't talk about narrative as if it's the truth, mm. because even when you're it's non-fiction, that's not the truth. Mm. It's it's a, a narrativized form of. So maybe narrative is a better term than fiction or non-fiction. But I think there's so much grey area between those two, and uh, but fiction is treated as. It, particularly in crime, is treated as ethically, you know, neutral. Mm. But it's not. It's mm. still not. Mm. You know, mm. yeah. um, if you think about, you know, how crimes of sexual violence are treated in in fiction, mm. especially in old fiction, mm. you know, like Chandler, he's got, mm. he's cuffing women about and all that yeah. kind of thing. Um, and and how they're treated in non-fiction, um, you, you know, you still have the ethical. Obligations in fiction that you you do in non-fiction. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's really really yeah. fascinating. I did wonder, um, and this might not be the case at all, but when when you wrote the long drop and you kind of filled in those blanks with your sort of fictionalized version of events, did you get any resistance from anyone 
about that? Did did anyone find that kind of ethically? Did anyone say to yeah. you, you know, actually, yeah. should you be doing that? Is that okay? Is it yeah? Yeah, funnily enough, so that this is an and I thought a really good thought experiment. So journalists said to me, you shouldn't be filling in those facts because there's like an hour and a half missing from a drunk night. And I made up the scene that mm. made sense of it. And it was the rumour that was going around Glasgow that this was what happened. So I dramatised an event and they explained everything. And uh, journalists were very annoyed about that. And they said, you can't do that ethically. That's really wrong. But the whole thing is, there's a lot of internal monologue. So that's all fictionalised. Mm. There's a lot of characterisation. So that's all fictionalised. Um, and a lot of it is extrapolated. And so even when you're in court, you're hearing what the lawyer's thinking in court and yeah. stuff like that and what the group mind of the women is. And, um, uh, you know, I mean, if you're writing historical fiction, um, we're so caught up with narrative that, you know, if you're writing non-fiction, historical non-fiction, you're using theory of mind to project a single motivation on character. So you think, you know, like classic um, exam question what were the causes of the first world war it was a b c and d i mean you're applying individuated you know um theory of mind to the whole of russia what caused the russian revolution you can't possibly that's a narrativized version of the truth um but when the long drop came out so a lot of journalists were saying to me you can't do that that's not right and then uh, and i was saying well i've done it anyway so fuck you yeah and uh and then the two surviving children from that time, there was a woman killed and her children um, survived. They were they are very old men and they came to see me um, at an event and they travelled quite a long way and neither of them were very mobile and they said, what you've written in that book is what we always thought happened. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes. Yeah. But it doesn't change ethically what yeah. I did, does it? Do you know what I mean? No, I know. Because because I haven't. I mean, I, you know, because I've served the people. I mean, I didn't know that when I wrote that no. book. Um, and so I think you know, at a certain point, you just have to say, well, whether you think it's okay or not, or whether you think it's going to cause social damage or not, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. And had they come to see me and said, we hate this. That's not what happened. But the the, the dominant story was. Um, that the, the murderer acted alone and my theory was the murderer didn't act alone mm. so they have been hearing the theory and watching fictionalised dramatisations of the theory that the murderer acted alone for 50 years and they're very offended by that mm. but that is the official story so are we arguing about the ethics of challenging the official story are we arguing about the ethics of uh, implicating someone who can't defend themselves? Are we arguing about do they do, do, do they have the right to say what really happened? I don't know. It's, uh, God, it's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, but you know, if you if you give up the right to be sanctimonious and you just say, yeah, all right, I'm a skank and I did what I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? I followed the story because it was a much yeah. better story, um, and it made sense within the facts. Um, then yeah, so I'll just take it on the chin. Cool. Yeah. Well, it seems slightly ironic to me that uh, journalists would uh, warn you about the ethics of truth anyway, because surely, you know, I mean, I know no. journalists oh, would no, not very now. much not think journalists that I grew up with. The truth, no, journalists I grew up with were fucking madmen and they just made <laughs> shit up. And when I did the first ever interview about Garnet Hill, I did an interview with The Sun. You're trying to disseminate feminist ideas through crime fiction. Mm. You're using a mainstream 
Who needs to read that more than people who read the fucking yeah, Sun? Yeah, no, that's true, actually. Do you know what I mean? And, and, you know, it's all well and nice doing interviews with the fucking Guardian, but you're not going to change any you're, fucking Yeah, lives. you're preaching to so the converted um, But, uh, so I thought, well, you know, you're just going to have to suck You don't like it, but you're going to have to suck it up and do mm-hmm. it because that's who should be reading yeah, no, you're feminist crime well, fiction. So anyway, I went and the guy said, I know your mum. And he was a pal of my mum's, the guy who was doing the interview. And he said, you're not very interesting, so we're going to make you more interesting. And he said, my friend's got a motorbike. Because so, there's someone in a motorbike in the first one. And and he said, come and sit in it and we'll take your picture. So there's a picture of me on a big hog, right? And he said, and we're going to say you lived lots of places you didn't live. That's old style. Nowadays, they're fighting about whether the ethics yeah. of historical crime fiction are... You know what I mean? Because yeah. in that time, since then, journalism has changed fundamentally. And you have had to start doing a degree to be able to work in journalism. You have to do an ethics course. Who can How afford to go on a degree... They all wear suits. They're all middle class. They're all upper middle class. They're all basically trying to, you know, find some giant expose that's going to change the world. They're no longer just cowboys who are telling stories. Do you know what I mean? So it's, I mean, that has changed in my lifetime, Mm. you know. Uh, But so I'm not surprised that journalists are (laughs) kind of snooty about ethics. But I'm still that generation of, we're going to say, they said I lived in Caracas. Were you, were you like, we'll just go, go for it? I was just kind of like, this is fucking fun. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is so interesting. Because you read The Sun and you think, that's probably bullshit. And then you go in and you do an interview with The Sun and you're kind of like, you're just making up. I love what right? they just said to you. I think he wouldn't have if he didn't know my yeah. mum. Do you know what I mean? A bit more honest, yeah. Yeah. So he was he was just really, and my mum's like quite a kind of chancy lady and uh, she's fabulous and uh, and I think he just kind of th- he sort of said will you sit on the motorbike and get your photo taken as if it's your motorbike and I was kind of like yeah yeah why not do you know what I mean yeah, yeah. that's but probably what draws their attention yeah it's like a bird on a bike moment, do you know yeah. what I mean and uh, and probably loads of people bought the book because of that yeah. you know and maybe became radicalised who knows mm. <laughs> um, if we go back to conviction and I want to ask about the True Crime podcast. Yeah. Because I'm a big... I mean, we're on a podcast. I'm a big podcast fan. I'm a huge True Crime podcast fan. We were discussing that a little bit before this interview. Um, not many books feature them yet, but I can imagine they'll pop up It's more coming. More. It's yeah. coming. Because there's another four coming out in the States next year. Ah, and uh, Yeah, so they are all... It's coming. It's going yeah. to be a tidal wave. Yeah, yeah. that's really, really interesting. Um, why did you choose podcasting within this story? Um, well, I'm, I, I obsessively listen to true crime podcasts and you can always tell people yeah. who do because it's really like, you know, uh, a lot of people become really obsessed with them. It so unites people quite a lot, big doesn't time. it? It's like a nice club that you just automatically... Really big like, time. It's yeah, like, people, what people say is, what are you listening to? Yeah. It's like, you know, what have you got? Do you know yeah. what I mean? And it's like a hard to get drug. It is. Um, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> And it's like crime fiction. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if you used to be, if you said to people, I love crime fiction, they'd go, oh my God, I love yeah. it. I love it's it. like a secret, like, oh, yes, I've been yeah. for someone to say that. I do too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's an underground kind of thing, you know. Um, so I was listening to them really, really obsessively, and I was very aware that it was doing something interesting to my brain, that it was so intimate that listening to podcasts in you, because it's a, a solitary thing, mm-hmm. um, but like you're going about your business, so I would remember a different image. Like if I listened to one podcast, I could remember exactly where I was and the smells and 
you know, the time and the temperature um, from re-listening to a podcast. Mm-hmm. I thought, this is really interesting what it's doing. But it was the storytelling because it was really wild and unregulated and people were making crazy claims about people that they, they, they um, maybe couldn't substantiate, mm-hmm. they could make an argument for, which might be okay. I think that maybe that is okay. And uh, uh, and there was just such good stuff mm-hmm. coming out. That was really, that's really why. Um, was I was listening to them really obsessively and I thought this is a really interesting form of storytelling and also very intimate mm-hmm. not just you listening to them but with the presenter because mm-hmm. they tell you things about themselves that mm-hmm. feel very very you, f- you really feel you know them in a mm-hmm. way that you don't with a writer yeah. that you don't with a radio or TV presenter um, it, yeah, I was going to say it must be hearing the voice, but I don't know. It's not because no, they it's, tell you yeah, stuff about yeah. themselves that like, you know. My dad's in a wheelchair, and so I understand this, this mm. kind of thing. And you feel you really feel you know them. Mm. You know, maybe they just talk so much. because a lot of the ones <laughs> you spend hours with them, don't you? Hours you really and hours. Do. And a lot of the ones that you really love, there's you know, there's lots of chit chat in the middle, mm-hmm. but you you feel that you really get those people or you identify with them. It's a really strange... I think it's a new art form. Mm. And I think this is the start of it. And I think it'll be regulated and professionalised soon enough. But I think this is a really interesting juncture. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm just going to end on one more question. So you mentioned in the event about sort of comic books seem to have more legitimacy now because of sort of Hollywood and the amount of money that it's making. Um, and the crime genre seems to have sort of evolved in that way yeah. too. You were saying, you know, it's... Can imagine it being a bit of a people almost apologising that they love you know reading crime books and now there's festivals everywhere. Well, when I started writing crime fiction, people mm. would say to me, "Do you not think you could write a proper book?" Yeah, okay, <laughs> genuinely, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they don't anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, I read a lot of. Uh, I don't read a lot of crime. I read a lot of kind of horror, and I do, and it's very, and that's very similar yeah. actually. Yeah, and I remember even at uni, like during my MA, I studied like a, I chose my MA because I. Uh, there was a module on sort of European Gothic that was really interesting. Right. And again, I felt like I almost had to... If people asked what I was really interested in, I was like, this? Call it Gothic? Like, yeah. Instead of yeah, horror? Yeah. Just, yeah, it's that kind of thing. But um, you've kind of answered it. I was going to ask, you know, have you noticed this kind of strong shift in attitude since you started writing yeah. um, towards your own writing as well? Well, actually, I'm really interested in the high art, low art distinction because mm-hmm. I did art history. Yeah. At university, I did law, but as an extra subject, I did art history. And one of the things you really notice is that what is low art? I like crime fiction because it's low art because I like low art forms. Mm-hmm. I think if you're a political writer, low art is where you engage. You do not engage with haikus for other people who like haikus. Mm-hmm. That you're not going to change anything. What you really need to do is write comics, write crime fiction, write horror, get involved in podcasting. I mean really that's really where it's happening because otherwise you're just stroking your ego mm, you're just talking yeah. to other people who agree with you already you yeah. know and um, uh, but sh- crime fiction has become very uh, middle class and very respectable and um, comics also they've, they've kind of come up really quickly mm. and I, I think it's just something that happens with everything as soon as there's it's about money mm. it's always about money as soon as there's a money uh, you know uh, some way of making money or some um, book, you know, sells millions. You know, do you know Chekhov wrote a crime novel? Oh, really? No, because there was a book called, I think, The Fogs of London Town, written by a New Zealander that sold worldwide. This is before Conan Doyle so, and, and Chekhov, right? How is Chekhov making a living? Mm. He's obviously thinking to himself, 
I could churn one of these out. This is rubbish. I could churn one of these out and make a living and then I could write very beautiful short things. And uh, uh, so he wrote a book called The Shooting Party and it's pants. It's half gothic, half a crime story, but it's before the form's really set, you know. But I think the higher art, lower art distinction, things change. And I think things change much more quickly than they used to. It used to take 50 years. I mean, I'm old enough to remember discussions about whether or not photography was art. You know, mm-hmm. people used to actually have that discussion and now they'll have discussions about things like podcasts or, um, you know, tattoos or stuff yeah. like Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is it art? Clearly it's yeah. art. I mean, do you know what, is, what they mean is, you know, there's no way of commodifying tattoos to make tons of money. Mm. You can't, do you know what I mean? Because it is individual or graffiti. How are you going to, you know, make tons of... Ron Muick is so interesting. I went to see the Bridget Riley exhibition on in Edinburgh. This is completely off point, sorry. But no. uh, but Bridget Riley doesn't touch her own work and she has studio assistants who make her work. Oh. Yeah. But Ron Muick, who did Dead Dad in the Sensations exhibition and Boy that was in the Millennium Dome, mm. it's like a he makes his own models. So he's always treated as a really, really snootily by the art because he does his own art. Because he, <laughs> ma- he physically makes his own stuff. So there is a kind of disdain for craft. Um, and I think you see that also in genre fiction. There is a real disdain for the craft of genre, as if literary fiction isn't genre, yeah. as if, you know, the professor who has sex with a young student isn't a genre. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I love literary fiction. I would never say anything bad about literary fiction. But, you know, the... Because it's the arts, you think everyone's going to be very egalitarian. Actually, the social stratification within the arts is so much more pronounced and kind of baffling. But it's always there. It's always going to be there. And so if something comes up, um, there's something else at the back of it that is still being made by nutters for nutters. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I feel like we could... Talk for it. I know. Ask you a million questions. You know me. So I, talk for it. I will wrap it up there. Right. But thank you so much for having a oh, chat with us. Um, thanks for listening, and thanks to Denise for chatting to us at the end of a very long day of slow trains. Noirage is, of course, a co-production between us and the University of East Anglia. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find the National Centre for Writing on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. Find our page on Facebook or sign up to our newsletter over at our website, which is nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. If you're so inclined, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus, so do feel free to come and remind me that I haven't written enough words all the way through November. Please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast as it helps other people to find it. Thanks again for listening. Keep writing. Good luck if you're doing NaNoWriMo, and I'll catch you on the next episode. (music) 